Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And today we're going to be looking at um, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read those, so please stand with me as we read God's Word. We are starting a series today on living in the last days. Today we're going to be looking at signs of the times. Matthew 24, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another. And hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence and we thank you for your word. And Lord, even when we read words like this that maybe we've read before, but we know they speak of things to come, they speak of painful things, they speak of unsettling things. And Lord, it's very easy to be worried and to be anxious and to to wonder. Lord, I pray this morning that you would set our hearts at rest in you, that we would find our deepest joy in worshiping you. We commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're talking about the last days. We are starting a new series within a series on living in the last days. And let me just say right off the bat, people get really weird about end time things. About You just start, you bring up that topic and, and the whack jobs come out. I mean, it's like they come right out, out of the woodwork. Um, and especially the people that go outside the Bible for their answers. Two pretty recent examples would be, number one, Harold Camping, and number two, the Mayan calendar thing. 
Um, you might remember billboards all over Los Angeles and Orange County um, telling us that the world was going to end on May 22nd, 2011, which it didn't happen. We all knew it wouldn't happen. If you believe the Bible, you knew it wouldn't happen on that day. Harold Camping and his followers woke up on May 22nd to the same alarm clock they usually woke up to. And uh, I'm sure to their disappointment, they had to get up, get dressed, and go to work that day. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says that only the God of the Bible knows the end from the beginning. That's why uh, when you speak of that Mayan calendar thing, uh, there was no wiggle room to insert the long count Mayan calendar ending on December 21st, 2012 into the, into the conversation. It's not necessary. But crazies abound on this topic. Now, there are, th- this is an interesting topic. There are challenges that come with it. Uh, for some people, just hearing the words, uh, the tribulation, the millennium, the rapture, the last days, it makes them salivate. They can't wait to start talking about it. But other people break into a cold sweat. They're, they're terrified of the, of the subject. But you mentioned the word prophecy around some people, and, and, and they're, they're fascinated. They can't get enough, while others are terrified. And then there are others whose their eyes just roll back in, into their sockets and they, you know, they get a blank stare. So this is a, um, a challenging thing. Some people relish the thought, and, but then also there are people, a lot of times Christians, who get bogged down in trying to decipher all the minute details and coming up with elaborate timelines and trying to figure everything out. But suffice it to say, whether you love it, you dread it, or are maybe indifferent, uh, today is the official start of, of a nine-week series within a series in Matthew, uh, chapters 24 and 25, that I am calling Living in the Last Days. And by the way, if you've been keeping count, this is sermon number 148 in Matthew's Gospel. We are tackling a subject that is way bigger than us. Now, anytime you come to the Bible, you're doing that. But this might just seem like kind of like hugging a whale. A subject that has generated or spawned much controversy has been the, the subject of countless debates uh, that has caused much confusion in the body of Christ. The whole idea of the last days and the end times and really the return of Christ. And the tendency when dealing with the order of events surrounding the Lord's return, is either to get very hyper-involved, again, with deciphering all sorts of uh, minute details, or really become completely detached and disinterested. Like, it's not going to happen for a long, long time. I don't have to worry about it yet. So some don't care, and they really should. Some care too much. They need to back off. (laughs) Uh, Some are content to stay confused or ignorant. They, They shouldn't be content to do that. We should want to think these things through. Now, one of my goals is to say to those who hold on too tightly to their views of end times is to lighten up. But if you're disinterested, I would just say you need to get a better grip on biblical truth because it's in the Bible. And this is big. This is something that is going to happen. This is something that Jesus says is going to happen. And and first and foremost, everything we read in these next two chapters is what Jesus is saying about the end times so it can be trusted. It can be, uh, it's assured that the things he says are going to happen will happen whether we understand all the details or not. 
Now, I do have some specific goals for this series I want to, um, to outline for you. Number one, that we would always do this, but especially with the topic of the last days and the events associated with, with Christ's return, that we would handle God's word accurately, that we would know how to interpret the Bible correctly, not twisting God's word to say what we want it to say or, um, you know, to fall in line with just someone's system, even of the end times, but really to, to handle it accurately, to interpret it correctly, to accept really the clear meaning of Scripture. The clear meaning. And to do that, we must approach Scripture with what is known in theological circles as historical grammatical framework of interpretation, rather than forcing Scripture to say something or allegorizing it or going off of our feelings about it, or, you know, in this case, uh, some end-time schematic that you find in the back of, the, of a book that was written in the 1940s and 50s, and you can find those. Uh, there are a lot of old uh, end-times charts that you can go and get. We want to know all the time when we come to God's Word, but especially in this, this subject, we want to know what does God's Word say and mean? relating to the last days, relating to the return of Christ. So at the heart of our handling of God's word is really a basic assumption that when God gave his word, when he revealed his truth, he wanted to communicate to us, and so he used language, human language, common to the people and time in in which he revealed his truth. So we use this historical, grammatical method of interpreting Scripture, which basically means we strive to, dis- to discover the author's original intent and meaning, intended meaning of the text in the context. And then we say, how does that affect our life now? It's like John Stott uh, put it, he had a preaching book called Between Two Worlds. It's, it's finding out what it meant to the people who first heard it and then find out the implications for us today. It's the whole idea of there is one interpretation of Scripture and many applications, but there is something God meant to say and he wasn't trying to say 10 different things. And so people are going to get it wrong. People are going to get it right. We will not be infallible in this. We are, we are dealing with an infallible, inerrant word of God, but we are dealing with it as fallible, errant people. So I want us to, first of all, handle God's word accurately and know how to interpret the Bible correctly. Number two, I want us to hold non-essential important things appropriately. The topic of the end times and the second coming of Christ over the centuries has fueled many heated debates. We need to agree to disagree on non-essential important things. Now, I'm not going to presume that I'm going to answer every one of the questions that you might have or settle every debate, but what I will tell you and I'll assure you is that I will aim to be faithful in handling God's word and I will be, be uh, careful to not hold too tightly or loosely uh, to certain views and I want you to do the same. So I want us to first focus on what Scripture actually says and again, it's especially necessary when dealing with the details we're going to be looking at over the next nine weeks. 
The third thing I want to say is that if you love Jesus, if you're in the category of someone who says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ. If you love Jesus, I want your end times view to impact your life in such a way that you would long for his return. That you would long for it. That that you would um, lovingly long for Christ's return while at the same time staying very engaged in your calling right now. That's what God wants us to do. And, and really, that's going to be the major emphasis of this series. Because it's the major emphasis the Bible has on this subject. All who love Jesus should long for his return as they live here on earth. Now, there are, by way of introduction still, we're still in the introduction. We're not getting into verse 1 yet. There are some things on which all Christians agree or should agree when it comes to Christ's return. And let me, let me just give you those as well so you know what we're working with all in agreement to begin with. Number one, chief among them is this. There will be a sudden, visible, bodily return of Christ. You don't have to go very far in our passage to look to find that. Verse 44 of Matthew 24 says, Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He is coming back. And when he appears, we shall see him as he is. We will see him. He says, you know, Jesus even said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's him personally, bodily, visibly. So there will be a sudden, visible, bodily return of Christ. The second thing we need to know that everyone agrees on in the Christian community, or should, is we eagerly wait and long for that return. I kind of put, uh, we'll put a little phrase in there, we, eager, we should but don't always eagerly await and long for his return. Uh, we, sh- we, should, we should be crying out as, as Revelation twenty two twenty says, come Lord Jesus. Oftentimes it's only when we're in really hard times do we feel that way. Maranatha, that, that means, oh Lord, come. That's what we should, be, we should be praying. There's one more thing that I'll point out. A third thing that, that Christians agree on. We do not know when Christ will return. We just don't know when it's going to be. Matthew 25, 13 says this. It says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You don't know. Those who think they do are wrong. Now what we do know is that believers will be blessed and unbelievers will be judged when Christ returns. Believers will live with Christ on a new heaven and earth for eternity and unbelievers will be in conscious eternal torment in hell for eternity. But as for the details of the timeline, the details of the timeline of Christ's return in relation to things like the millennium and the tribulation and, and all those, they're not known with assurance. Just realize that. They're not understood or agreed in fully by all Christians. Believers, Christians believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, yes. And they believe what the Bible teaches, yes. But there will nonetheless be certain things that stay in the OGK category. Only God knows. And he, at the time of his choosing, will reveal the answer. 
So let me say one more time, uh, in this series, but, and, and really in life, you're probably not going to get all your questions answered. And you're probably not going to be satisfied with all the explanations I give. And, but I want you to be focused on the gospel truth fact that Jesus will return. He's coming back. Okay. Now with that, let's, let's look at a little bit of background and then we'll get right into um, these verses for today. And um, Matthew 24 and 25 is often known as the Olivet Discourse or the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. Different than the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And it is the last of the five, uh, what are known as discourses, in Matthew, either sermon or, a, or a, a talk that Jesus gave. So you've got the Sermon on the Mount, first of all. You've got Jesus sending out his disciples in chapter 10. That's the second one. You've got the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. You've got a discourse in chapter 18. And then this in chapters 24 and 25 on the second coming of Christ. Now, each of those five discourses ends with a variation of the words... When Jesus had, had, had finished these sayings, which kind of marks the end of that. So we're dealing with the Olivet Discourse, the, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, and it reveals some of the most important prophecy in Scripture. It's very important. So let's look at verse 1. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 1. The Olivet Discourse was prompted, by the way, by Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction. So you go up to Matthew 23 and verse 39, he says, the verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about the second coming in judgment. And so verse one, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down now if we were just dealing with a little brick building that was going to get hit by a california earthquake we'd say well of course it doesn't have you know cement and rebar in there and it's not reinforced but when you were dealing with the temple you were dealing with a whole nother thing uh this temple was known as herod's temple at the time it was begun by herod the great in in 20 bc it was still under construction, still things getting added to it when it was um, destroyed in A.D. 70. And um, it reminds me of this house. When we used to live in Irvine, there was this house that was known as the Crone Street Castle. And it was this huge monstrosity, eyesore for the neighborhood it was in, that was never finished. It had like stairways leading to nowhere and balconies just kind of going off of a ledge and and there it was just no rhyme or reason to the design and it was kind of the, a running joke in the city it was never quite finished it was always partially completed and we don't even think anyone lived in it it looked abandoned but unlike that home the temple was one of the most impressive structures of that day it was very very unique it was beautiful it was it was it was built out of massive blocks of stone many of which were overlaid with pure gold and there were there were stones in there as big as 40 
feet by 12 feet. And they were fit, they were quarried to fit perfectly together. The buildings themselves were made of shiny white marble. The entire east wall of the main structure was pure gold. When the sun hit it, you had to shield your eyes because of the brightness. The whole complex was a sight to behold. So the, the disciples, it's kind of blowing their minds. They're thinking, there's no way that this could get destroyed. They've, they've got to be wondering how something so amazing could be left desolate. It was a shock to them to even think about it. The rabbis back then had a saying. They said, whoever has not beheld Herod's building, the temple, has not seen anything beautiful in his life. It attested to the magnificence of the temple as rebuilt by Herod the Great. But Jesus says, verse 2, not one stone shall be left. So what happened? In AD 70, 70 AD, the, the Roman general Titus built these huge wooden scaffolds along the walls of Jerusalem. And he set, he got wood and piled it all up and he set it all on fire. And the heat was so intense that the stones crumbled. And the, afterwards they, they sifted in the rubble to retrieve all the gold. The remaining ruins were thrown into the Kidron Valley. It happened, just like Jesus said it would. Now this is what was prompting Jesus' really long answer, by the way. Now they're going to ask a question next, okay? In, in, they're going to come to the Mount of Olives, which is a great, by the way, a great appropriate setting for this discourse dealing with the second coming of Christ. The Greek word is parousia. It's because Zechariah talks all about um, the Messiah being on the Mount of Olives and, and talking about these type of things. But the Mount of Olives was the hill directly across from Jerusalem. They would, uh, across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, they would have this huge, the great panorama view of the city as he, was, as he was speaking these words. At the base of that mountain, by the way, is Gethsemane. Mark tells us that it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew who asked Jesus the question. I'm going to call it a big three-part question. Some people say they asked three questions to Jesus. Some say it's two questions. I'm just going to call it a big three-part question. Here, here it is. What will be the sign of your coming, the parousia, uh, by the way, that's found 24 times in the New Testament, four of which are in Matthew 24. The term can refer to someone's presence, someone's arrival, someone's coming, but it really has to do with Christ's second coming. Now, the end of the age, they said, what will be the sign of your coming? And, uh, excuse me, first they ask, when will these things be? They're talking about the temple. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Um, the idea of the final judgment, the, when, the, when everything uh, is, is wrapped up, basically. Jesus' answer to the question is long. Let me just say that. And we will not deal with it all today. Okay? We're doing 14 verses today. But his answer is, verses, is chapters 24 and 25. It is the longest answer to a question in the whole New Testament. Very, very long answer to a very quick question, but it's necessary. It's necessary. He's speaking these words before the cross, by the way. But he is telling them what is going to happen. So he's dealing with these signs to look for. And what is going to happen? Well, first of all, his answer begins, verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. Verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. What he's saying is, first of all, there's going to be some deception going on. And there's going to be 
false messiahs coming on the scene and claiming to be me. So this is going to be after the cross, after his burial and resurrection and ascension. So they're going to claim that they are the second coming of Christ. Now the list is very long of people. Uh, crazies, whack jobs, you name whatever you want to call, call them whatever you would like. People who have said that they are the second coming of Christ. Um, just in our uh, last few generations, we'll, I'll name a few. Jim Jones. Uh, the Reverend Sun Young Moon, David Koresh, even Charles Manson, okay? Uh, crazy people who say that they are the second coming of Christ. And, and you can go, go online and check it out, you know, and uh, go to Wikipedia, you know, that great research site, and, and you'll find long, long lists of people worldwide. But really it started happening in the first century, Jewish people who said that they were the second coming of Christ. So a lot of deception is going to be going on. Uh, These imposters, they will be delusional, but they will also be deceptive. Think about it. When hard times come, people want to kind of latch onto something. And many times people latch onto something that's false because they get get pulled in by it. They They get deceived. They get tricked by the snake oil. Deception will happen, Jesus says. And then he says this in verse 6, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So there will be worldwide disturbances of the peace. Uh, There will be worldwide wars and rumors that wars will happen. Just in American history, we have a lot of wars. But there are wars being fought right now. Uh, there are ton, there are, there's just been thousands upon thousands of wars and, and rumors of wars. We're always wondering who might launch a nuclear attack and things like that. I remember as a little kid, I grew up in the, in the, uh, the last part, in the early um, 60s. And so I, I was growing up in, during the Vietnam War. Some of you served in that war. But me and my friends, we all figured that we would be going to war in that war when we got old enough to go to us that was a foregone conclusion while it was going on and we were watching it on tv and we were seeing the list of of the draft uh names people that were getting drafted and i was looking for my older cousins names and things like that we just figured that that was going to happen jesus said there's going to be these wars there's going to be these rumors of the rumors of wars And he says, now see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. He's saying, this is going to happen. These are the kind of things that will be happening, but this is not yet the end. Bad things will happen, but this is not the end. He says in verse uh, 7, that nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It's going to keep on happening. We talk about world peace. Not meta world peace, but world peace. And what we realize is that that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. There are ceasefires and there are allies and there are measures of peace. But as long as sinful humans roam the earth, there will be wars and rumors of wars. But Jesus also said there's going to be worldwide disasters, famines and earthquakes, things that really tear us up when we see them happen. Hunger. That's the, the word literally means, for famine, literally is hunger. 
There's no rain. There's a drought. You can't have crops. You don't have any money. The, uh, you, you, people start dying in large quantities. You know, from 108 BC to 1911, there were 1,828 famines in China alone. There were 95 in England in the Middle Ages. And then earthquakes. Us, we Californians, we don't, we don't need to be told that the earthquakes will happen. We kind of just, well, we don't think about it until it happens, really. Uh, we might have a little kit at home or something like that, a preparedness kit. Uh, but you can't get insurance for it. You just kind of have to live with it. I'd rather take, I've said it before, I'd rather have an earthquake than a tornado or a monsoon or a, t- or a tsunami and all that. But earthquakes... You know, just yesterday, there was another one in Japan, 6.3. Just this week, one in Iran, 6.3. There was that big one in in Japan um, a few years ago where I think it was 15,000 people died and 2,600 were missing and 4.4 million were without electricity and 1.5 million were without water. This This is huge. These kind of things are going to happen. There's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. And Jesus says, you know, all these things, they're just the beginning of birth pains. The only people who really know about that are ladies who've had babies. I've watched it happen in my own family, and I empathize. But I don't know the feeling. I've tried to say that, you know, this hurts as much as having a baby. It doesn't work. But Jesus is saying, um, this is the beginning of labor pains. But here's an interesting thing. We usually associate pain with death and destruction. But labor pains are pain, is pain that leads to glorious life. So Jesus is saying this is the beginning of labor pains. That it's not leading to a grisly death, but to glorious life for believers. So then he goes on. See, in verse 9, he's going to tell them there will be even more pain. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for for my name's sake. You will go through trouble. You will go through persecution. You will have sorrows, and you will be killed, and you will be hated by all nations on account of Christ. That's what he's saying, that there will be a, a persecution of believers that probably up until that time was, was unknown. But there was, there was more. Jesus says there will also be defections from the faith. Look at verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. They will fall away from their profession of Christ. In verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And verse 12, lawlessness will be increased. Sin and lawlessness. It will be going on and many will be caused to to be offended, to be stumbled. And then he says in verse 13, uh, verse 12, uh, the love of many will grow cold because of that. And and the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, and, And then he says, the gospel will still be preached. You endure, you'll be saved, and the gospel will be preached. That the ones who persevere are the same ones who are saved, not the ones whose love grows cold. And it doesn't mean our perseverance earns us salvation. 
True believers are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. The guarantee of our perseverance, uh, true believers' perseverance, is, is built into the, the promise of God. God basically secures our perseverance. That's what the scriptures teach. He keeps us through faith. I like how Jude says it. Keep yourselves in the love of God who is able to keep you from stumbling. And all, throughout all the world, the gospel will be preached. You know, some believe that, that God himself will do that preaching when, when the angel in Revelation 14 will have that eternal gospel to preach to everyone. I prefer the view that says that he was talking to his followers and so, and now to us. So regarding that preaching, it has been entrusted to us until he comes. But I will say this, it w- in, in, our, in our final moments, let me just say this. It would be very easy, very, very easy to focus on these signs. You know, we, we're big on signs, aren't we? You know, stop sign, yield sign, all that. It would be very easy to focus on these signs and, and keep these and kind of check them off when we think they've happened. But then we would miss what Jesus was really saying to his disciples. It wasn't all about the signs. What Jesus is doing is he's calming them down. The reason why is because they were all hyped up on, on the immediate. They, they, they thought. Think of the original hearers of these words thought that, they, that, that everything was going to happen probably within a few weeks or a few months. That it was very, very imminent. And so they were thinking this and he was trying to tell them, no, expect delay. See, God's timing is perfect. He's, he's not slow. The Bible tells us he's patient because he wants people to come to repentance. And what I love, I, I love everything about Jesus, but what I love about Jesus is that he does not just give cold, hard facts. Here's six or seven signs. Make sure you, you know what they are. No, he speaks to our hearts. That's what he was doing with his disciples. He was speaking to their hearts. Do you know what Jesus was really saying to them? Look with me. Again, go to verse 4. I've got three. Let me just point out three things that Jesus was really saying to his disciples. Verse 4, he said, see that no one leads you astray. He's telling them, don't be deceived. Basically, don't be deceived. Cling to the truth. There is superstition. There is deception. There is demonic activity. But get your future views from God as seen in his word. I mean, don't go and look at Mayan calendars. That's unbiblical. That's demonic to do that. So he's saying, don't be deceived. Cling to the truth. And then look at verse 6. What does he say? All these things are going to happen, but see that you are not alarmed. See that you aren't terrified. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Wait for me. He's saying, wait for Jesus. Basically, that means you're not going to go buy a bunker for $10,000. That's what was going on, by the way, with that Mayan calendar thing. Potential catastrophes, widespread public fear. So one California businessman decided to do a building project, building luxury bunkers in secret locations around the world. He got 5,000 Americans to pony up 10000 bucks a person. One guy says, uh, I'm not a crazy person, but these are fe- fearful times and my family just wants to survive. You got to be prepared. Not like that. That's not the preparation you need. Here's what Jesus says in verse 13. Look at verse 13. 
the last thing he says to them. See, he's calming them down. He says, to the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's telling them. He's giving them encouragement. He's warning them, don't be deceived. He, he, is, he is saying to them, don't give up right here. Encouragement to them. Don't give up. Keep going. Preach the gospel. I believe living with the end in view is what we should do while staying very engaged in now. I think Jesus is telling his disciples there will be a delay, a a long yet solid and secure bridge between his resurrection and his return. We're living in 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 that time frame. We're on that bridge and it's not going to fall. It's secure. It's safe. It's solid. But here's the interesting thing. We, most of us, many of us, who call ourselves believers, don't long for Christ's return. The disciples wanted it now. We say, after the grandkids are born, after the marriage is done, the wedding is done, maybe then Jesus can come back. After all the things I really, really want to do in life are done, then it'll be okay for Christ to come back. You know, sometimes I think we're kind of like um, tra- uh, would-be travelers that are really depressed because they have no money and no ticket to go where they want to go and they just think, I'm never going to get to go on my dream trip. But God wants, to be more, wants us to be more like expectant mothers who, who are either waiting for the baby in just a couple days or maybe the, like there's a family in our church right now, the due date has passed, right? Baby no, not born yet. And, and but guess what? The bags are packed for the hospital and you're still engaged in life. That's how God wants us to be, like expectant moms. Bags packed. By the way, you're taking nothing with you, so just don't take that one too far. And, and longing for his return while staying engaged in life in your calling now. And now, we're going to do what isn't a hard left turn. We're going to take, we're going to celebrate the bread and the cup. And guess what? Remember on Easter, I said that uh, the resurrection of Christ is all about the love that was shown on the cross and the work that was done on the cross and the life that was given at the cross. But it was about something more that it was about the return of Christ, the promised return of Christ. See, Paul said, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 